If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3. We're not going to actually, that was the slide for communion. There we go. That was a slide for communion. Sorry, I had that up a little late. We um going through this series in Romans on, on free. I don't know if you come into church with questions sometimes, but I think a lot of times people come into church with questions. I hope you do at times. Uh, some of the uh, in- most interesting questions in church come from children at times. Uh, if you've taught children's church or kids' classes, you know this. Uh, or if you're just a parent and you bring your kids to church, you've got to be ready for any question that might come on the, uh, on the way home. So I did a little search and tried to find some questions that children ask uh, about God, and I found some. A little Norma wants to know, dear God, did you mean for a giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? Another one, Jennifer wants to know, dear God, in Bible times, did they really talk that fancy? Those of you that have a King James know what she means. Dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? Lucy wants to know. Robert, dear God, I am American. What are you? Good question. Jacob, are you a ninja? Is that why I can't see you? Sylvia wants to know, now listen to this one. Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but try to be fair. There's some theology that needs to be taught there, whoever is Sylvia's teacher. Jane asks another good theology. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? And this one isn't so much a question. I just love it. I can't even read what that algebraic equation is up at the top that someone is trying to, I assume, solve for X in. He didn't know the answer, so his answer was, Jesus is always the answer. (laughs) And the teacher wrote, not on this question. (laughs) Minus five. He should have got points just for creativity. All kinds of questions about God. Children have questions about God. You and I have questions about God. I hope when you come into church that you have questions, and I hope that the messages that we share address many of those questions. When I talk to our uh, preaching team, you know, one of the things I'll often say is we don't want to be answering questions that no one is asking. We believe that the Word of God is relevant, is given to us in order to speak to us about how we're to live in our lives. It answers questions that people ask. We believe we serve a big God who is big enough to handle our questions and that we should be able to bring our questions to God. And, you know, that church ought to be a place where you can bring your questions and I can bring my questions When we have questions about the big things in life, questions of purpose, questions of direction, questions of where we came from, where we're going to, other questions of just how do we live our lives, church should be a good place to come and bring our questions. We may not always like the answers. We may have to search hard for answers in God's word and study and pray, but it should be a place we're able to bring our questions. 
And you're saying, what are you getting at in Romans chapter 3, Pastor Rick? The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the need for the gospel. The last few weeks, we have been seeing that Paul, in writing this letter to the Romans, has laid out this case that everybody needs the gospel. That everybody, the, the, the irreligious person who knows very little about God, but can look around and see that something and someone must have created all that's around, that there must be a God somewhere, but chooses to deny that God, that person needs the gospel. We saw the next week that Paul said, then there are these religious people, those who do and do not believe. We called it doing and not believing. Those religious people who would point to others and say, yes, they do need the gospel. And Paul points at them and says, yes, but you need the gospel too because your religious acts are not going to be enough to save you, are not going to be enough to gain forgiveness. Then we saw the next week, last week, we had, a, we had a message called having and not believing, that we have sometimes these affiliations, these connections, maybe it's with a church or, or, or an organization, and that sometimes we think just our affiliation is going to be enough to gain us some credibility with God. And that Paul said, those of you that have these affiliations, it's not enough, you need the gospel too that all these groups need the gospel. And you may feel like the last three weeks and even this week, you're just saying the same thing again and again and again. And in some ways, I am. And in some ways, God's word is. And I'll give you a, a little tip when you're reading your Bible. When you see a concept or something that's dwelt upon in Scripture, it often means it's pretty important. And Paul, in these first three chapters of Romans, is laying this foundation again and again and again. And he's saying, everybody needs the gospel. And he comes to that climax in chapter 3 where he's going to lay that out, that what he's said is everyone needs the gospel. Before he gets just to that climax, he brings up a series of questions that he thinks is coming up in the minds of the people he's talking to. And maybe, as I've shared these things these last few weeks, some questions have come up in your mind. And so Paul anticipates some questions that have come up in the mind of the people he's talking to. And maybe some of those questions are also your questions, and he addresses them. So the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, let's look at it together and some of the questions Paul thinks might be coming up in the minds of those he is writing to. He says this, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak And prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, 
Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying in some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, I know there's some complicated questions in there, and it's a complicated argument to follow, especially quickly as I read it to you this morning. Um, But let me just articulate what I think some of the questions that are being raised in here that may also be ones that may be relevant in our mind and in our time as well. And also, let me lay it out in relation to the messages we've just shared these last few weeks. Maybe the question comes up, is there any value in all this church stuff? You know, the question they asked, is there any value in being a Jew? Is there any value in circumcision? The question may come up, okay, labels don't matter. Okay, the affiliation doesn't matter. But is there value in this church stuff? You know, you just preached a whole message against the fact that our affiliations don't matter, Pastor Rick. You just preached, are you trying to empty the church out? Is there any value in that? That question might come up. Second question that might come up that he addresses, what about people who have been a part of Christianity, heard the gospel, and then walked away? Does that prove that the gospel is not effective? What about people who say they are Christians and do things in the name of Christ that are anything but the way of Christ? Does that invalidate God's message? Third question that he brings up that's a little more of a complicated one, but if you think about it for a second, it, it, it does make sense what the argument that's being made, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, is if my unfaithfulness brings more glory to God, then how can I be condemned for that? Because God is getting more glory. And again, that might be a little more of a complicated question. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's, let's take a look at these three questions. The first question, what's the point about being a part of a church in these groups? Our affiliation, you just said, doesn't matter. It doesn't gain us anything with God. So is there any value? Is there any advantage to being a part of the church? Is there any, he, his listeners would have said, is there any value then in being a Jew? What's the point? there any advantage then? Paul, you're saying it doesn't matter. And he says, he's saying it doesn't matter, of course, when it comes to salvation. And when it comes to salvation, it does not gain us anything. But Paul says, yes, there is an advantage. Yes, there is value. He answers it in verse 1. What advantage then is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, he says. Which may be a surprise. After what he just said, you may be surprised to hear him say much in every way. You may have expected him to say, no, there's not. But he says much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And this was a unique aspect of the Jewish people. God had to choose somebody, and he chose Abraham. And he chose his descendants. Because he wanted to reveal himself to the world. And if he's going to do that, he has to choose somebody to reveal himself to and through So why God chose Abraham and his descendants and the Jewish people, there's no reason given to us. He just did. That's who he chose. And he's God, so he can do that. So he chose these Jewish people, and he said, I'm going to reveal myself through you. And what he does is he entrusts his story and his word, what we know as the Old Testament, to 
these people. He entrusts his law to this group of people. So Paul says it's a huge advantage. You have the knowledge of the word of God. You know who God is and what he expects of you. And that alone is a huge advantage. And that should not be looked down. Does it gain you salvation? No. Does it guarantee you a place in heaven? Absolutely not. But is there an advantage to it? You better believe it. Sure there is. And sometimes the the Jewish people would get this mixed up and they would think that just because they were Jewish and just because God had given them them this important role in salvific history, that that that's all they needed. So sometimes they would put their faith in the things instead of in God. There was one time where they had lost a battle and they didn't know what to do. And so they said, we know what we'll do. God's presence and God's word is what's all powerful. We've been entrusted with God's word. What we need to do is we need to take God's word out onto the battlefield. And that's what will win us the battle. So there was this vessel called the Ark of the Covenant where they kept the, the, the word of God, the Ten Commandments of God in this vessel. And they said, if we march this vessel out, we can't lose. Because this is God's word. And and they marched that vessel out in battle, and they lost that battle. And not only that, they lost the Ark of the Covenant to their enemies. As God was teaching them, no, 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 you have this important job to, to steward the word of God. But your faith is not in these words. Your faith is in the God of these words. And these do not equal your salvation but they tell you about the God of your salvation. And so what advantage is there for being a Christian? What advantage is there to to coming to church, to to being affiliated, to coming here every week, to being raised in the church? Is there any advantage? Or do you just believe in Christ and then leave and you don't have to be associated or affiliated with anything? I think Paul would say, no, there's a great advantage. Because when you come around the word of God, and you learn it together and you spur one another on, you have a knowledge of who God is and who you are. And later on in this passage, what he's going to say is this. He's going to say, you know what the greatest advantage of the word of God is? You know what the greatest advantage of knowing the law and the standards of God is? You know what the greatest advantage is? It tells you how bad you are. <laughs> and you might not look at it that way. But later on in this passage, that's exactly what Paul says. The greatest advantage is you know how much you need God. My greatest advantage of, of, of coming to church and being a Christian and, and, and having the exposure to the word of God, understanding of the word, the greatest advantage to me is I realize how much I need God. And remember, Paul's saying everybody needs the gospel. So I come and I am reminded that I am lost without God. So there is a great advantage of that. And Paul says don't, don't underestimate that and, in any way. The word of God is a gift to us. It's not something to be taking lightly. It provides wisdom and guidance. And when we study it together, when we come together in community to spur one another on, to uh, guide, uh, be guided by the Holy Spirit and God's Spirit together, we become more his people. So Paul says, of course, there's an advantage to your Jewishness. And I would say, I think Paul would say, of course, there's an advantage to your Christianity, even though, yes, some make the mistake of putting their faith in Christianity instead of in Christ, there is still an advantage of being a part of the body of Christ and the church. Second question that might be asked, 
Paul asks it this way, what if some did not have faith? In other words, God's given the Jewish people this word, but what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. In other words, okay, God gave this gift of this word to his people, and yet there are some that don't believe. Does that mean it's not true? God gave this, this wonderful gift, and this, but, but there's some that don't believe. Does that invalidate God's faithfulness? Does their lack of faithfulness invalidate the faithfulness of God? We might put it this way. Maybe the question comes up this way in your mind. You've heard or you know people who maybe grew up in the church, maybe who heard the message. They were baptized They sat in church much of their life. They knew the teaching. Maybe they were teachers themselves. And then at some point, they walked away. At some point, they walked away from the faith. They walked away from the church. They turned their back on God. I heard a story this week. I was listening to a podcast of... uh, Someone that I, you know, I knew as a, as a worship leader, someone that I, I didn't know personally, but was like a national worship leader. I'd written some songs that I liked and, and, um, and, and, and enjoyed and, and uh, was well-known. And I was listening to, I saw that there was a podcast that he was on, so I listened to the podcast, only to find out he's completely turned his back on the faith. Only to find out he's completely walked away. And he gave his reasons for doing that and, and, uh, and what it was. And, you know, he pointed to the exact day that he, you know, you know chose not to, to pursue this faith. And there are many people that probably, I'm sure, still sing many of the songs he's written. And so some people may look at that and say, look, here's someone who was in on the inside and they walked away. Does that prove that, this, that their unfaithfulness disproved God's faithfulness? Or there's another aspect of it, too, that sometimes there are people that will do things in the name of Christ that are not very Christian things. And so you've had these conversations with people you work with and live beside. Oh, you're talking about Christianity. Well, what about the Crusades? Or what about what this person did that lied? What about this person's morality? What about this person that stole? What about this person who claimed to be a Christian and stole money? This person who claimed to be a Christian and committed adultery? This person who, you know, and they go on and on and on, pointing to people. And does this invalidate the faithfulness of God? Do these people, did their unfaithfulness invalidate God's faithfulness? That's the question Paul is raising in the minds of his listeners or thinking that they are thinking. And I think it's fair to say that's a question that comes up people in our day too. One of the best responses to this question that I've heard is in a story told by Ravi Zacharias. And if you listen to Ravi, he's a Christian apologist and preacher. He's got a unique gift to... um, communicate the gospel. He does it on college campuses and university campuses around the country. And if you've heard Ravi, you've probably heard him give this illustration because I've heard him use it a number of times. But I think it fits particularly well uh, in response to this question of whether things done in Christ's name invalidate the message of the gospel. 
And Ravi takes the story from a book named, a uh, book written by a woman named Marie Champion, and whose book, Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. So he says, the book told of the suffering of the true church in Yugoslavia, where so much wrong has been perpetrated by the politicized ecclesiastical hierarchy, that which has gone on in the name of Christ for the enriching and empowering of corrupt church officials has been a terrible affront to decency. So Ravi, this is how he recounts the story. One day an evangelist by the name of Yaakov arrived in a certain village. He commiserated with an elderly man named Simmerman on the tragedies he had experienced and talked to him about the love of Christ. So here's a scene. Yaakov's an evangelist. He comes into the village and he meets this man, Simmerman, who has experienced tragedies at the hands of those who would call themselves Christians. And Yaakov is trying to share Jesus with him. Simmerman abruptly interrupted Yaakov and told him that he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yaakov of the dreadful history of the church in his town, a history replete with plundering, exploiting, and indeed with killing innocent people. He says, my own nephew was killed by them, he said, and angrily rebuffed any efforts on Yaakov's part to talk about Christ. They wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses, he said, signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. Yaakov, looking for an occasion to get Simmerman to change his line of thinking, said, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your coat, put it on, and break into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? I would deny it, said Simmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say, retorted Yakov. This analogy quite annoyed Simmerman, who ordered Yaakov to leave his home. Yaakov continued to return to the village periodically just to befriend Simmerman, encourage him, and share the love of Christ with him. Finally, one day, Simmerman asked, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin and of trust in the work of Jesus Christ and gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. Simmerman bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed and surrendered his life to Christ. As he rose to his feet, wiping his tears, he embraced Yaakov and said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and whispered, you wear his coat very well. I think this story helps us understand and helps confront this argument that sometimes will come. Does the lack of faithfulness sometimes on people in the name of Christ invalidate the message of God's gospel? And Paul would say no. Paul would say no. In fact, he says, look, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, it does not, the gospel does not depend on the decisions of men and women to believe it. 
there will always be people who have walked away from Jesus for one reason or another. They will always have a reason why you should also walk away. But the question that must be answered for you is who are you going to believe and what are you going to put your trust in? There is good, strong arguments and evidence supporting the Bible as the word of God and the message of the gospel, but you can always find someone who would tell you what you want to hear if you want to live a different way. And the decisions, what Paul is saying, look, the decisions of men and women to walk away or to do things in the name of Christ that are not of Christ does not invalidate God's message. The the third and final question that he anticipates is the one that's a little more complicated in its reasoning, but let me try and explain it and let me try and make it a little bit relate to our situation. And the question that he raises is this, but if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say, that God is unjust bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderous reported as saying, that some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. If God's faithfulness and love is shown clearly in the unfaithfulness of people, then why be faithful to God? Can't some make the argument that their evil brings God more glory? This one's a little more complicated, but let me try and explain it this way. It'd be like um, trying to think of an analogy that, that fit, and I thought it would be like a military person that goes AWOL, maybe in enemy territory, and, and goes out and gets himself in a place of harm's way. And as he's in this place of harm's way, the uh, rest of the military is not willing even though that person left of his own free will, is not willing that that person be lost. And so they, 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 they marshal all the different resources at their disposal, Navy, SEALs, special forces, whatever it is, equipment, spy planes, everything to go after this one person. And through their efforts that cost an extreme amount of money and an extreme amount of effort and put a lot of uh, men's life and women's life in danger, they're able to rescue him. And all this praise is heaped upon these rescuers. And they are, they are touted as heroes for what they have done. And then the man comes back and gets court-martialed for his actions. And he says, wait a second. If I had not left, you would not be getting all this praise and glory for what you did. So how can you condemn me? How can you condemn me? Because you received and benefited from what I did. So how can you now possibly condemn me? And that's kind of the argument that Paul anticipates. That, hey, if God is given glory because of his grace to those who are unfaithful, how can those be condemned that somehow offer glory and gain God glory? And that's kind of the argument that that he's making there. But I think there's another one here, and that is when he comes down to this question of, shouldn't we just do evil? That God's glory and good may come about? 
Let me phrase that question in a way I think that might relate to our day and age too. You see someone come up and give a testimony on stage. And they tell about what God did in their life. And they tell this story about how all their life they had lived in a way contrary to God's teaching. And they had done all these things that, you know, they had lived a life that was completely contrary to God. They had lived a life of, you know, everything, everything you can think of that would be contrary to God's way of living. And then one day when they were older, God came into their life, touched them. They were saved, changed instantly. They were delivered. They were saved, delivered from bondages and addictions and saved. And in that moment, and in that moment, if that that testimony is here, everybody gets up and cheers and says, oh, that's praise God for what has happened. And so the argument Paul is anticipating is, well, can I just live my life whatever way I want and then one day I come up and give my testimony and tell my story and God gets, and people stand up and clap and, and, and God gets the glory? Well, isn't that, wouldn't that be right and wouldn't God be wrong in condemning me because doesn't God get greater glory from that? And Paul's anticipating this argument. Can't I go and live my life any way I want and then... You know, before I die, at some point, look, I'll make things right with God. And at that point, God will get even greater glory for it. Some of you that have been sitting in church most of your life say, that argument doesn't even make sense. But some of you may be sitting here saying, yeah, that argument does. I've thought about that. That argument does kind of make sense. I would say to that, and I think Paul would too, There is a right and wrong with God, and you know it, and God will judge you on what you know and your knowledge. I would also say you're playing a dangerous game of chicken with God with your own heart. What you don't realize is that every time you choose to go your own way, your heart gets a little harder towards God and the things of God. Your thinking will follow the decisions that you've made because you will justify them in your mind and your mind and heart will want to develop thinking consistent with those actions. The human mind does not do well with duplicity. We want coherence. So we become the people we are acting like. And you cannot guarantee that later in life, at any point, you will have a genuine heart for God. It may be that today is your opportunity, that today your heart is sensitive to God. And then, like Paul says, if that's the case, you'll get what you deserve and really lived for and wanted all along, which is a life apart from God. So we don't, we can't know. Certainly, we don't know when that last day will be. We think we do. I got it planned out. I'm going to live 70 years, somewhere around 65. I'm going to come back to church. I'm going to get things right. We'll be good, but I'm going to do what I want up until that point. We are fooling no one and certainly not God himself. Paul says, in fact, he dismisses this argument rather quickly. You know, he says their condemnation is deserved. In other words, Paul says, look, if that's the argument you're going to fall under, you know better, you get what you deserve. Because you're going, you know, you have this knowledge. 
But he closes this passage after anticipating these questions with a summary of everything he's just said. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he closes and summarizes and kind of comes to the climax of everything he's been saying for the last two and a half chapters. And he says this, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is summarizing by quoting numerous Old Testament scriptures. And then he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that, they, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Don't miss what he said there. And the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we have become conscious of sin. Paul comes to a climax here and he says, look, this is what I've been saying for my letter the entire time. No one. No one can stand before God and say, I'm righteous in my own way, in my own right, in my own actions. Paul says, no one, not the religious person, not the irreligious person who said, I didn't know. Not the religious person who says, I've done all these things. Not the affiliated person who says, I've, I've gone and I have all these affiliations and accomplishments. Paul says, no one, no one can stand before God and say that he is righteous. We can look to other people and think that we are. Paul says, no one. Comparing, you know, there's all kinds of illustrations that have been used as we try and compare ourselves to the works or actions of others. Uh, one I heard as I was studying this this week is it would be like swimmers setting out from Japan to reach Hawaii. You know, and one may swim 10 miles and another 100, and maybe one swims 200 miles, but all three drown. Paul is kind of saying that. You can do all you want. You can have all the affiliations you want. There are, you know, you can, you can have all these things in your life, but in the end, everyone is lost without Christ and without the gospel. So he closes by saying that the whole world will be accountable to God and that the primary value of God's law is showing us how much that we need God. You come to the Bible and we say, I can't do this. I look at this law and I say, I can't do this. God says, I know. We say, I need help. God says, you need more than help. You need a savior. We look again at the word and say, I can't save myself. God says, I know. I've already provided you with one. The world around us may try to tell us that we are all right and everything is fine and we don't need God It's much like Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. You remember the story? 
uh, how it goes, that there was an emperor who was very fond of appearance and clothing. A group of clever men came to the emperor and told them that they would make him the finest clothes anyone had ever seen. They would be, a, they would be rare and costly garments and would only be visible to those who were wise and pure in hearts. The emperor paid the men, and they got to work sitting before empty looms and pretending to weave. Soon the emperor's curiosity to set, uh, got the best of him, and he sent his chief minister to see how things were going. The chief minister, of course, saw no cloth there on the looms, but he did not want to be thought of as unwise or impure, so he came back to the emperor telling him how fabulous the cloth looked. Eventually, the emperor, after they had asked for more money, sent a second chief minister who returned with a glowing report. Finally, the impatient emperor himself went, and though he saw nothing, he declared the cloth to be wonderful and even gave the weavers medals. Finally, on the day of the grand parade, the con men dressed the emperor in nothing, and as the emperor paraded in front of his people, Awe natural, everyone cheered and praised his beautiful clothes. The crazy spectacle continued until when? Until one child was heard to say, the emperor has no clothes. At once, everyone knew it to be true, including the emperor himself. One honest remark stripped away the hypocritical pretense of the entire ordeal. So God's word strips away our emperor's clothing. One commentator says, it reveals our soul's nakedness. The world system proclaims we are robed and well when we are not. God's word cries above the self-deceived crowd that we are not okay. We say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. God says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But this is what we must understand and embrace before we go on. In the gospel, we must see our own nakedness, our own need. Romans chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, God speaking to his church says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words, we need to see our own nakedness before we understand our need for God to clothe us. John Stott says this about this section of Romans. Our first response to Paul's indictment then should be to make it as certain as we possibly can that we have ourselves accepted this divine diagnosis of our human condition as true and that we have fled from the just judgment of God on our sins to the only refuge there is, namely Jesus who died for our sins. Here's what Paul's been saying for three chapters. Paul's been saying for for three chapters in the beginning of this letter, here's what he's been saying. He's been saying something that you have said before. He's been saying something that you have, a phrase that you have said many times in your life. And you have used it many times, I promise, in your life. It's two words. Here's what Paul's been saying. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. 
And we use that saying as a way to excuse our own actions. We use that saying as a way to level the playing field and say, hey, nobody's perfect. What are you going to do? Made a mistake. Nobody's perfect. And the truth is, we may scarcely ever utter a statement of more true theology than those two words. Nobody's perfect. And that's Paul's entire point. Because if you're not perfect, you fall short of being able to enter the presence of a perfect God. We use it to excuse our actions. Paul is saying it's the one thing that ultimately accuses us all, and we need the gospel because of it. And so in these three chapters, you may feel like we've been repeating ourselves, and Paul is going on and on, and let's move on to the good stuff, Paul. But if you don't get to this place of understanding that we all need the gospel, that we're all naked and need God to clothe us, that none of us are perfect, then we're not able to move on. We're about to turn a corner. Two weeks from now, we're going to get to Romans 3.21. And Romans 3.21, the section starts out, but now righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. And Paul is, Paul is going to show us how, yes, nobody's perfect. Nobody has lived up to the law. Nobody has lived up to God's standards. And he's about to turn this corner and say, but now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the rest of this letter is going to unpack. We're going to get to that in two weeks. Next week, Mother's Day, I've got a special message to share along the uh, theme of the uh, same theme from the T, which is unto every generation, and we're going to talk about that message. But in two weeks, we're going to get to Romans 3.21 and continue on in our series But here's what I want you to hear this morning. I don't know that I've ever spent three, you know, consecutive weeks in church just proclaiming that we are all in every way sinners in need of the gospel and just breaking down every argument we have. But that's why we preach through the word of God because those are the passages that we come to in the book of Romans. I want you at the end of these three weeks, I hope my prayer is, that each and every one of us will come and be able to say, God, I need the gospel. I need a Savior. That my works are not enough. That my affiliation is not enough. That the fact that I had a grandma that prayed for me every day of her life is not enough. The fact that I have 20 Bibles sitting on my shelf at home is not enough. The fact that I've got a baptism certificate or membership certificate or sit in church every day or give so much money is not enough. That ultimately what matters is have I put my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me?
Father, we come before you today, and we've said it before, we are not very good at self-diagnosis, Lord. We are so much more practiced at pointing the finger at others and pointing out what others need that we are woefully deficient at seeing our own need for you at times, Lord. We are woefully deficient of seeing the times when we have put our faith in something other than Jesus Christ. Even though we may have started out in the spirit, we sometimes finish in the flesh. We finish by putting our faith in affiliations or attendance or giving. But Lord, let us this morning not leave this place without being sure that our ultimate faith and trust is in Jesus Christ. That it's in you alone. And I encourage you this morning as you're here, maybe throughout these last few weeks or maybe just this morning, maybe this is your first week with us, that you have come to the realization that your faith and trust has really been in something other. Maybe your faith and trust has been in Christianity and not Christ. Maybe your faith and trust has been in a church or in your parents or in your grandparents. I encourage you, if that's the case with you, that you would this morning make sure that your faith and ultimate trust is in Jesus as your Savior. Because the bad news is that none of those things can save you. But the good news is that none of those things can save you. You don't need any of those things. What you need for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, I encourage you this morning in your own words, in your own place, to just tell the Lord. God, I don't want to put my faith and trust in anything else but you. That, Lord, I don't want to be swayed by other people. I want to keep my eyes upon you. And that I want you to be the Lord of all of my life. And that I would follow you all the days of my life. And I hope that you and each and every person in here has done that this morning. And even if you have questions still, I encourage you. God is not afraid of your questions. I encourage you to bring them to him. Bring them to other Christians who you know who are in here. Walk through your questions together. and Look for the answers in God's word. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word this morning, even as the Apostle Paul anticipated the questions that people would have, anticipated the questions that may be on our mind. Thank you that you did not ignore us, but you listen, you respond to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace available through Jesus Christ, even though we could not do anything to deserve it or earn it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.